Well, good morning. My name is Caleb, one of the pastors here. And we continue our study this morning through the book of First Peter. We're going to be in First Peter chapter 3, looking at verses 1 through 6. Uh, and I want to begin by reading our text this morning. It's the most important thing we'll do all morning, reading this text, and then we'll talk about it for a little bit. So 1 Peter 3, verses 1 through 6, Peter writes this, in the same way, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands, so that even if some disobey the word, they may be won over without a word by the way their wives live when they observe your pure, reverent lives. Don't let your beauty consist of outward things like elaborate hairstyles and wearing gold jewelry or fine clothes, but rather what is inside the heart, the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For in the past, the holy women who put their hope in God also adorned themselves in this way, submitting to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, you have become her children when you do what is good and do not fear any intimidation. I was walking up this morning into the service and uh, one of our members here, um, a, a woman married for decades, came up to me and said, Caleb, I'm excited for the sermon this morning. I couldn't tell if it was an encouragement or a warning. No, knowing her and knowing her heart, she meant it exactly as it was, which is an encouragement, which honestly is text that I've received this week from women in our church, conversations I've had with women in different seasons and generations about this passage this week. It makes me just as a pastor thrilled to be at a church where the women of this church love the word of God um, and want to follow him above anything else, even at times if it's not culturally acceptable or praised. But there's a desire to fear God and not fear man above anything else. And that's, I think, what we'll see specifically in this text. And so as we jump in, I want to go ahead and get in because we're going to be um, uh, looking around and, and looking at a few different places throughout the Bible. Um, because I want to begin with this as well. We talk about this in our Bible study. If you came to our Acts Bible study or been to any of our Bible studies in the past, we talk about the importance of Bible study. And as we study, looking at three different words, understanding that as we study, we want to observe, interpret, and apply. It's really just three important words in how to study the Bible. First, observing, asking the question, what does the text say? Second, interpretation, uh, what does the text mean? And then third, application, what does the text mean for me? Now, the reason why I bring that up is because what can often happen, if you've grown up in the church or been to a Bible study, we want to jump the second step and go straight from one to three. We want to read it and then go, what does this say to me? But friends, the hard work of Bible study happens in that second step, in interpretation, and in looking to say, what was the author's intent? Because remember, this was a man, Peter, inspired by God, writing two people. We want to try to understand, okay, Peter, what were you saying to these women in this scenario? What, was their life, what were their lives like? What was their context? What does the text mean? The text has one meaning. And thousands of applications, but we can't get to the application before we understand and wrestle with the meaning. And so you'll see, I think, often in texts like this, we saw it last week as well, I think people skip that hard work of interpretation, jump right then to application, and that's where we get to all sorts of misunderstandings, misuses, or even abuses of passages of Scripture. 
If you take 1 Peter 3, 1 through 6, rip it out of your Bible and hold it up, oh friends, as has been done in the past, those six verses can be used to oppress and abuse people that God has given to care for. So we've got to make sure that we want to understand. So you'll hear it all throughout the sermon. We're going to be looking at other places in Peter. What kind of word, what did he mean by this word? Well, he uses it in other places in this letter. Let's help that define what it means. And then we're going to be looking at other places in the Bible. We want to let the Bible interpret the Bible. So not just simply take it out and go, well, here's what this means in English. Well, no, let's let the Bible interpret itself. So we want to be able to do that as we approach it, as we look at this passage and look at this painting of a beautiful wife. What makes a wife beautiful? And as we look, there are three things I think that Peter um, shows us here in this passage. And that what makes a wife beautiful is first, and these are the three points we're walking through today, is first, winsome lives. You see that in verses one and two. Second, eternal beauty in verses three and four. And finally, fearless hope in verses five and six. Winsome lives, eternal beauty, and fearless hope. Now, again, as we go through, as I said, like last week, there'll be a lot of references. Feel free, if you, if you are feeling your Bible sword drill skills this morning and you want to flip around, you can. But I'm going to go quick and feel free to write down the reference. But let me just also highlight this point, that every week when the sermons are posted on uh, the app that we have, Church Center app, uh, the notes, my notes as well, are posted on there. So even if you don't get every reference, the notes are there. And you're like, well, Caleb, I'd love to download that app. How can I do that? If you look in your bulletin, look at the announcements, Church Center app, there's a QR code right there. Download that app, search for the Grove Church, and then you'll see the sermons. You can watch or listen to them. And you'll see a link on there for sermon notes. So if you miss any references or anything else, they'll all be there. So be sure to download the app. There's also tons of utility in the app with events and everything else. So if you're here, a part of this church, be sure you have that app uh, as we jump in. So with all that being said, let's now get into the text. First, as Peter describes a beautiful wife, he begins by describing winsome lives in verses 1 and 2. And we need to ask the question, okay, who is Peter writing to? We get some context here in verse 1. He says, in the same way, wives. So he's talking particularly to wives here. This is a, this is a conversation that we all get to listen into, though. And as you'll see as we go on, this isn't only applicable to wives. There are things that we learn as we observe these godly women as they live this life out. So whether or not you're a man, whether or not you're not married, friends, there's still something for us uh, to learn today. But here in verse 1, we see Peter's writing to wives. And particularly, he's writing to wives whose husbands are not Christian. This is really important as we get into this text. Look at verse 1. It says that in the same way, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands so that even if some disobey the word. Now, that phrase there, Peter's used before, back in chapter 2, verse 7. He writes this. He says, so honor will come to you who believe, but for the unbelieving... The stone that builders rejected, this one has become the cornerstone and a stone to stumble over a rock, uh, and a rock to trip over. He's describing those who believe and those who don't believe. And then verse 8, he says this, they stumble because they disobey the word. So this is Peter's description for someone who's not a Christian. So Peter's writing to wives and in particularly wives who are married to men who are not Christian. That's really important. That's going to frame what Peter's saying. Now this is not condoning um, a husband or a wife to go and marry someone who's not a Christian. 
It's, 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 it's both unwise and unhelpful to disagree on this fundamental reality, the most important decision you'll make. This is not what Peter's doing. More than likely here in the first century, as this fledgling Christian faith has begun to spread across Asia Minor, there were people who were married, who were not Christians, and the wife became a Christian and now found herself in this marriage. What then am I to do? And again, in the first century, in that uh, structure in society where women, their testimony weren't allowed to be heard in court, sometimes and often viewed as pieces of property, there would have been no recourse for them in that situation to have any kind of hope that their lives would change or their husband's mind would change. And maybe they felt like, I'm following Jesus, but what am I supposed to do now? Well, friends, that's who Peter is writing to. Telling them to be sure to submit yourselves to your own husbands, these who disobey the word. And what does he tell them to do? Again, we see the command there in verse 1. Submit yourselves to your own husbands. He's going to flesh this out, what this submission looks like in a marriage. But if you've been here the last couple weeks, you should have heard this theme in Peter's writing. Two weeks ago, he's writing to every Christian citizen telling them to submit to the government. Right, this was verse 13 to 17. And then verse 18 to 25, we saw last week, was this submission for particularly the people who had been mistreated as slaves still to submit to their masters, who had no recourse for justice. There was still a way for them to live the Christian life, but this was applicable to any vocation, to any kind of boss. There's a submission that's there. Peter now shifts from the government to vocation to now marriage. To say there is this relationship here as God has designed for wives to submit themselves to their own husbands. Now, again, we've got to take just a moment, and I want to do this briefly so we don't get bogged down in it. There's a whole nother sermon on submission and leadership that we don't have time for because that's not even necessarily the thrust of this passage, as Peter's writing. But we do need to get a little bit of clarity before moving on in what submission is and what it's not. Because there is this general suspicion of submission today. Certainly within marriage, but of any authority. You just think about any, just think about the heroes in our movies. Luke Skywalker, rising up to overthrow the empire. Ariel, oh, maybe there, out there, on the land. They'll have fathers who won't reprimand their daughters. If I could just get away out of my father's authority, I could do what I want. Elsa, there's no right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. I didn't expect the philosophy lessons from Disney this morning. Oh, friends, I think though, if you look at movies and songs, they will reveal the cultural ethos and what's at the heart of what's being taught where we are, particularly in a Western imagination. There's this suspicion towards authority. Some of that's really good and right because of the abuses that have happened. And friends, that suspicion towards authority or the, the writing of the abuse of authority, protecting and speaking out for the powerless, those who've been oppressed. Friends, we don't need, Christians not to be afraid of that idea. That's a Christian ideal. Read the Psalms. God has a heart for those who are oppressed. Oh, friends, that's the, that's the Christian movement. So as there has been a voice to the voiceless, Oh, friends, that's a good thing we should celebrate. But that has led to this suspicion to authority and really submission as a whole. There's a, a new artificial intelligence tool called ChatGPT. I don't know if you guys are familiar with it. You can go ask a question, tell it to do whatever, and it will artificial. Somehow, people don't entirely know how it works. It feels like the beginning of Terminator, but that's fine. Here we are. Um, 
You can go and ask it this question. It'll give you an answer. I asked it to um, describe what it looked like for a wife to be submissive within this text. And it wouldn't give me an answer. Instead, it said this, describing someone as submissive can carry negative connotations. As it may imply that one person is being controlled or oppressed in a relationship. It's important to emphasize that healthy relationships are based on mutual respect and equality where both partners have a say and make decisions together. And then it went on to give me antonyms for submission after that. And so it's interesting that in that response, half of it I go, actually, I agree with that. I don't think that biblical submission and mutual respect and having a say together and making decisions together are at odds with each other. Um, And so it's interesting, but there is a, a reluctance to submission. So what is submission not? What is it not? Again, I'm going to go through quickly. You can take notes if you'd like, but this will all be, um, this will all be uh, on the app for you to look through. Oh, friends, first, it's worth saying submission is not simply for women. This is not a, a feminine uh, command. Again, we've seen it even in this passage, 1 Peter 2.13, every Christian citizen is to submit to human authority, to government. Um, slaves to submit to your masters. Hebrews 13, 17, church members are to obey your leaders and submit to them since they keep watch over your souls as though who, those who will give an account, men and women. Or Ephesians 5, 21, just before Paul's passage on husbands and wives, submission and leadership, the verse right before, verse 21, he says, submitting to one another in the fear of Christ. There is a way in which there's mutual submission as well that's for both men and women. Submission is not simply meant for women. A second, submission is not meant for all women to all men. That's not what Peter's writing here. Peter isn't saying women are to submit to men in every facet and category. You look there in verse 1, wives are to submit to your own husbands. Not to every husband or every man. This particular in the way that God has designed marriage and the picture that it is to be of Christ and the church. As Ryan prayed earlier, That marriages are to resemble and reflect and display this beauty of the gospel. Christian marriages are. It's how God designed marriage. It was his idea. It's not meant for all women to all men. A third, submission does not communicate differences in worth. Submission does not say men are more valuable, women are less valuable, or subservient in any way. They have to simply just do what they're told because they don't know what they're doing. Friends, remember the very first, you see the very first words in this passage, in the same way, or likewise, maybe your text says. You know what Peter's linking to? Just before he had looked at Jesus as the example of faithful submission to his father. You remember the Garden of Gethsemane just before Jesus was crucified? Have you ever looked at his prayer? He asks the father, if there's any other way for this cup to pass from me, Can we do that? Jesus knew what was coming. This cup of wrath that he would bear walking to the cross. And he prayed, if there's any other way this cup can pass from me, can we do that? But then he ended his prayer, how? But not your will, not my will, but yours be done. And the son submitted himself to the father. And Jesus is the example that all of these examples in Peter are based on. And friends, there is no denigration of worth as we look at Jesus' submission and his humility. In fact, what we see in scripture, that humility is what leads to his exaltation. This is the Christian way. It's an upside down kind of economy. It doesn't communicate differences in worth. Submission also is not saying yes to everything your husband says. So submission doesn't just go, oh, I'm not gonna say anything. Yes, 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 okay, yes. I submit, yes. This is where you wanna go for dinner. I don't wanna eat there, but I submit. 
This is what you want to watch on Netflix. I don't want to watch that. I submit. But friends, in this passage, again, it's important to see these women have already disagreed with their husbands on the most important choice they will ever make. They are Christians and their husbands are not. In fact, even in this culture, it was assumed that women were to take on whatever religion the husband was to have. They were to have no say. They were to follow along. Uh, one, um, one philosopher was noting in the first century that women were expected in the first century to take on the friends of their husband. They were just to take them on. I see wives are getting very uncomfortable right now if that were the expectation today. You must simply take on your husband's friends and the primary friends are his God. You must take those on. These women did not simply submit and go, whatever you say, I'm following. It doesn't mean just saying yes to everything your husband says. Also, submission is not just a personality profile. It's not something from the Myers-Briggs that works really well with certain personality types. We'll see that throughout our passage. It's not synonymous with timidity or passivity. Oh, friends, biblical submission and biblical womanhood is defined by strength, actually. We'll see that later on. We'll just, we'll need to move on. Two more. Submission does not mean that you don't try to influence your husband. This is similar to not saying yes to everything. That doesn't mean you don't have a voice. It doesn't mean you don't vocalize disagreement. It doesn't mean that you don't try to persuade your husband to something else. Again, do you see here the, the thrust of this passage is the submission is meant so that they may, these husbands may be won over. The whole hope of their submission is that they might persuade their husbands. But it doesn't mean you just step back and oh, I'm not going to say anything. I need to submit whatever he thinks. Oh, friends, often the direction that God wants your family to go will be spoken through your mouth as a wife. One person said the husband may be the head of a household, but the wife is the neck. And it's interesting to me. <laughs> Amen. It is interesting to me how often in my life the Holy Spirit's voice sounds so similar to my wife's. And I don't mean that as a joke. Oh, friends, we need to be sure that we are listening we're listening to our wives. It's sometimes the greatest gift that God's given us to help us see and follow him. And wives actively trying to win over your husbands. And seventh, finally, before we move on, submission is not staying in an unsafe or abusive relationship. Again, this passage has been ripped out and used to say that. You're in a relationship where you're being beaten, where you're being hit. You're, being, you're in a relationship where you're constantly denigrated, manipulated, gaslighted, and spoken down to. You're made to feel less than. There's a pattern. And you read this, and maybe your husband even uses this to tell you, you need to be quiet, you need to submit. Oh, friend, that is not, sister, that is not what this text says. That is not what this text means. It is unfortunately the way that this has been used in the past. That is not what this means. Again, this was written particularly to women in a particular context. This isn't meant to just import our experience right over the top of it. And so if you are in a situation where you are unsafe, if you're in a situation where you have experienced abuse in your, in your relationship, know that God is not telling you to stay quiet and not do anything. Come and find help. It's one of the reasons why God has given the church elders to be able to step in and help walk alongside and support you. And it's why the church has given us the government to help enforce when these laws are broken. And so if there are ways that we can help, come and talk to me today. Call me or email me today and we can get together and begin to talk about what it looks like for you to find safety and to follow Jesus. So that's not what this text means, not what submission is. So what is marital submission? 
And I give that adjective on purpose. Because marital submission, of a wife's submission to her husband, is not the same of every kind of submission. It's not the submission of a child to their parent. It's not the submission of a citizen to an emperor. It is different. It's different. Oh, there's so many things. We'll, we'll touch on that more next week. We'll move on. Marital submission is then this. <clears throat> it's a wife's voluntary recognition of and respect for her husband's leadership within your marriage according to your gifting. That's a stab. That's not a verse in the Bible. This is my stab at beginning to try to put some legs on this. What submission means. It's a wife's voluntary recognition. It's not taken from her. She is not conquered by it. She is not coerced or forced. It is given. It's a voluntary recognition of this is how God has designed a marriage between a husband and a wife. Look, this is your good design for what, how we are to look as we then reflect uh, the um, relationship of your bride and your church is recognition of and respect for and not constantly cutting your husband down either in private or publicly but respecting him, honoring him holding him up, supporting him that's why I think even Ephesians 5 it's so interesting as Paul talks about this at the very end he encourages husbands to love their wives but for wives to respect their husbands different words that Paul uses for each in the relationship and there's a way in which this idea of respect, recognition and respect for this husband's leadership within your marriage is seen within submission. But this last phrase I think is also important. According to your giftings. So not every relationship, not every marriage looks the exact same. Submission is not who does what chores. Submission is not who handles the finances. Submission is not who drives the car. Submission is not who gets to choose where you go to eat dinner after lunch, after church. Submission is not just simply um, these, I, these characteristics and caricatures that we may have seen uh, from America pushed down into the text. Oh, friends, it looks different in every single marriage. Different personalities, different strengths as it plays itself out. But these principles are at work regardless of who might be more theologically knowledgeable, who might be better with finances, who's better with tasks and systems. Uh, it, it's all going to be different. Who's a better driver? If your wife is a better driver and you get into wrecks all the time, stop driving. You're putting your family at risk. Stop being so selfish. Anyway. It's doing this according to your gifting. I think we get into trouble when we have a cookie cutter and go, this is what a biblical marriage looks like. This is what submission looks like. Sometimes the best leaders see, I think, the best leaders see the gifts and the people they're leading and they are pushing things to them to lead in those giftings. And that's going to be different in every marriage. So that's what submission is, this, this command from Peter here to submit yourselves to your own husbands. So what's the hoped for fruit of this submission? That's the command here within the context of marriage. What's the hoped for fruit? Well, there, so that, here comes the hoped for fruit, the, the result and the purpose Submit yourselves to your own husband so that they may be won over. This is the hope. Remember the context. Peter's writing to these women whose husbands were not Christians. Here's the hope so that they may be won over to Jesus. That they may be won over to God. That there is this missional and evangelistic thrust to the passage. That's what Peter's writing to. And it makes sense because that's the vein all in chapter 2. We are to live as strangers and exiles in this world. Strangers 
and sojourners and pilgrims in a hostile world following Jesus and living good and beautiful and pure and holy lives so that people may see your good works and glorify God in heaven and your relationship to the government and relationship to your bosses and relationship to your marriage that you live in such a way that you are salt and light in the earth that you are not trying to take up power and overthrow a culture that's running in an opposite direction but you are to follow Jesus and live a beautiful life and that those who are called to him will be drawn to your goodness and glorify God who is in heaven that's what this passage is getting at so that they may be won over and it's important to remember that as we keep going through and how will they be won over Peter tells us that they may be won over without a word by the way their wives live This is the how, that they would be won over without a word. Now, I don't think, I think, you, I don't think that Peter's saying here is you don't have to ever say the gospel. You don't have to speak the gospel. Like when we see other places that you need to do that. I think what Peter's getting at here is the sense and the burden that a wife might feel to always be bringing it up. And maybe sometimes feel guilt. Am I not saying it enough? Do I need to say it every time we eat dinner? Every week? Do I need to be sure to keep inviting him every, every Sunday to church? How am I supposed to do? And Peter's saying, no, let that burden off your shoulders. There's actually freedom for you. And there's real power that can be found in your life. You don't have to continually nag them, invite them, or try to manipulate them. But you, by following Jesus, can live your life in such a way that they would be won over without a word. When they observe your pure and reverent lives. It's the purity and reverence of their life. That word fear, that's that Greek word there, Fear for reverence. Now, in 1 Peter, every time that word fear or reverence is used positively, it's used in relationship of us to God. So Peter's not saying here, hey, when they feel like you're being really reverent to them and you're fearing them as, as a husband, they may be like, boy, she really likes me. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to go to church with her. Peter's saying, no, as a wife, your primary goal is to live in such a way that you live in the fear of God. You live a pure life. And that will have ramifications, but that's the focus. Live a reverent life. In 1 Peter 1.17, Peter says this, If you appeal to the Father who judges impartially according to each one's work, you are to conduct yourselves in reverence. It's that same word here. During your life, uh, during your time living as strangers. That's where the title of the sermon series comes from, living as exiles, living as strangers. This is Peter's perspective to see the world, to live in reverence. That's men and women, but it's to God. 1 Peter 2, 17, honor everyone, love the brothers and sisters, fear God, honor the emperor. Yes, we honor the emperor, but we fear God alone. We don't need to fear the emperor who may take your body and throw it in a coliseum that will be ripped apart by animals. You don't need to fear that. He cannot... He cannot separate you from the love of God. You can live a life of fearlessness in regards to him because you fear God alone. And this was our call to worship this morning in Isaiah 8. This is Peter's quoting this passage here in chapter 3. He says, do not fear what they fear. Do not be terrified. You are to regard only the Lord of armies as holy. Only he should be feared. Only he should be held in awe. A fear of God and reverence and awe of him leads to a fearlessness in this world. This is, what the way, this is what was true for these women. That they were to live reverent lives, pure and holy lives. And Peter's saying, when you do that, 
When that's your focus, living, fearing God, reverential awe of him, shaping your lives in purity and holiness because he is holy. Peter's leaning into these women going, sister, there is power in a life like that. There is hope in a life like that. I'm sure that right now your situation feels hopeless. There's nothing that you can do and you feel like no argument could convince your husband. And Peter's saying, don't worry. You don't have to try to convince him. Live your life in such a way that the Spirit works through it and that he may be one over them. Not with your lips, but with your life. And friends, the persuasive force of your evangelism is not your knowledge of apologetics or your theological clarity or how cool or relatable that you might be. It's whether or not your life is holy, good, and beautiful. That's the most persuasive force in your gospel message. And if that's true, then the opposite of that is also true. That if you are not following Jesus, but you're, set, you're telling everybody, hey, you need to believe in Jesus, but you're at work and you're the last person to submit your expense reports, you find that you're kind of slowly stealing some stuff from the office, people don't like to work with you because you are a contrarian, you're always challenging the authority of your boss, your life is negating your message. And people won't listen to you because of your life. Uh, friends, we need to see what Peter's saying here for all of us, that we need to strive to live a, a fearful and reverential life before God as we strive to live pure and holy lives, believing that then that there is a, a type of evangelistic persuasion that comes from that. This is what Peter again is getting at in this whole section in chapter 2, verse 12. Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles so that when they slander you as evildoers, they will observe your good works and will glorify God on the day he visits. Or again, Jesus in Matthew 5, 16 in the, in the Beatitudes, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to God the Father in heaven. It is not a guarantee that people will not slander you or that they will become Christians. Peter is not saying this is a promise, but he's given this as a proverb and giving women here in this situation something to aim at and how to live and giving them remarkable hope. Friends, if, you're, if, if you would have been the recipient of this letter in the first century in Asia Minor and these small house churches scattered across Asia Minor. Christianity wasn't a national religion. It was a small little house church that was being slandered already as this movement wanting to overthrow the government, cannibalistic and incestuous. Slandered in all sorts of ways. They're calling each other brother and sister and Lord's Supper, eating flesh, drinking blood, and calling Jesus Lord, not Caesar Lord. They were slandered. There would not have been an easy time to just invite your husband to church because all his friends were coming too. Or you could join the church fantasy football league or come play basketball on a Wednesday night and, and maybe you could get the husband into community. That wasn't the case in the first century. I'm sure for a wife in this situation, it felt hopeless. And Peter is saying, no, there is real hope. There is no shortening of the grace and the power of God. So sister, follow Jesus. Trust in him. And God can do incredible things. That just because your situation may not be ideal does not mean that God cannot use you for remarkable things. And this was true not only for them, but goodness, for maybe today. If you're here and you have a marriage that has broken, imploded, you have a marriage, maybe you're married to someone who's not a Christian. Maybe you're single, divorced, widowed, widower. And wondering, can God still really use me in significant ways? 
My friends, maybe there's this question in your mind from the enemy asking you that very thing. And what I hope you see here, friends, is that God uses everyone who would rely on him in powerful ways. All you have to do is look at other examples. You look at young Timothy, the person that Paul chose single-handedly to carry on this leadership in the young Christian faith. His protege, the one he poured into. You know what we know of Timothy's father? We don't know his name, we just know he wasn't a Christian. You know what we know of Timothy's grandfather? Nothing. You know what Paul says when he writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2? His final letter to Timothy before he's killed? Oh, Timothy, I've seen your sincere faith. It was passed on from your mother, Eunice, and your grandmother, Lois. Paul notes the way that God moves in incredible ways through women in non-ideal circumstances to do incredible things for his kingdom. Oh, so sister, if you're here wondering if God can use you, he can if you continue to follow him and rely on him. This is what Peter's writing to in this conversation. So you note here, winning them over without a word. So you hear, Peter's not giving wives marital advice on how to avoid or resolve conflict. That's not what he's doing. He's not saying that, oh, when you get in a disagreement with your husband, you need to just submit, not say anything, and just if you live nice lives, then maybe you'll win him over. That's not, a, that's not what the context is saying at all. So if we go and bring that onto here again, that's where we've skipped over interpretation and jumped right to application. That's not what Peter is saying. This is not advice on how to avoid conflict. This is evangelistic. This is more applicable, not to a disagreement in a husband and a spouse. This is more applicable to people who have friends or family members that you see often that aren't Christians. And you wonder, what am I supposed to do? Do I need to invite them to church every single time? Do I need to have conversations every time I see them? This is men, women, married, not married. In that situation, what are we to do? Friends, this is the, the application then to our lives. Oh, we live good and beautiful lives. Yes, we speak the gospel. We don't have to say it every single time we see them. But let's live a life that follows Jesus. Let's pray for them that they may be won over. Oh, what hope this passage would have infused into the hearts of the women hearing this letter. We have examples of this throughout church history. Maybe most notably is St. Augustine in a book that he wrote in 397 AD. One of the most celebrated autobiographies in, in church history. He wrote a book uh, called Confessions. I I am, I am, there is, this is not my notes and I shouldn't say this, but here we are. I, there is a part of me that wants to be, I think this, this part of me inside that feels like there's this Christian version of Weird Al Yankovic that's here within me <laughs> that can take, that can take stuff like this and can, um, look, so here's my idea. Here's my pitch. I've had this idea for a while. It's Augustine songs, confessions, but to the tune of Usher's confessions, but sung by Augustine. I think that there's a lot of traction there and a lot of feet there. Um, so if any of you take that idea and run with it, I will sue you. Um, I'm kidding. I won't sue you. There's something about that. About Anyway, moving. This is why I need to stick to my notes. In his autobiography, in his confessions, he writes of his mother, Monica, and his father, who was not a Christian. He became a Christian at the very end of his life. And here's what he writes of his mother. Monica did all she could to win him for you, speaking to God. Speaking to him of you by her conduct, by which you made her beautiful. And finally, when her husband was at the end of his earthly span, she gained him for you. Friends, I am convinced 
that there will be scores of husbands gathered around the throne because of the life, witness, and testimony of faithful Jesus-following wives. That's what this text is getting at. Winsome lives. But secondly, he then moves to this other description of a beautiful wife, this eternal beauty, verses 3 and 4. So he shifts. Peter shifts here, and now he's like, hey, yeah, um, by the way, don't get crazy with like hairstyles and gold and stuff. It's like, where did that come from, Peter? What, we were just talking about all of this about winning your husband without a word, and now don't let your beauty consist of outward things like elaborate hairstyles, wearing gold jewelry, or fine clothes. Does this mean that, that women right now, in obedience to Jesus, need to take out the ponytails and start unbraiding your hair? Does it mean we need to detach any gold jewelry or earrings that you have right now? Or again, if the ESV, if you have the ESV or other translations that more literally will translate this word, he doesn't say fine clothes like the CSB translates it. I think that's what he's getting at. He's saying any clothes at all. That's the literal translation. So Peter is not saying that women should not braid their hair ever, wear gold jewelry, or ever wear clothes. That's not what he's saying. So what is he getting at here and why is he getting at this? I think in connection to what he's just said, there may have been an impulse for women in the first century to feel like maybe through their beauty, through their charm, how they look or how they um, presented themselves, that their husband may then come and listen to them as a result of that. And Peter's saying, listen, you don't have to put your hope in that. You don't have to adorn yourself with these elaborate hairstyles, with gold jewelry or with very fine clothing. That's not where the persuasive force is. Because then notice he shifts right back in verse 4. But rather, here is what is persuasive, what is inside the heart. Not outside, inside the heart. The imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. He's saying you don't need tactics or seduction or manipulation. You can trust that following Jesus is the greatest thing that you can do. You can live to follow him. And what qualities in particular does Peter highlight? Gentle and quiet spirit. Now again, this is where we need to do some work. Because if we come to it, we may read it and just go, well, this is just a personality type. Peter's just writing about a wife that's really quiet and timid and passive. And at times maybe comes a doormat. Just, okay, well, whatever you think. I'm gentle. I'm quiet. Well, this is what we understand gentleness to mean in English or quiet spirit. Oh, friends, we got to take those words and look at them in other places. And what we begin to see is gentleness isn't even a feminine quality. It describes the very heart of Jesus is the expectation of every Christian and is a requirement to be an elder. This is not just feminine. Oh, I'm so gentle and, and oh, so meek. And, and we say those things as if they're bad. Gentleness and meekness, friends, those are the people, Jesus says in the Beatitudes, that will inherit the earth. I think one helpful definition someone said of meekness is it's strength under control. That's why it says that Moses was the meekest man in all the earth. I think that's what it means. It's not one of physical weakness or being walked over. It's one of looking like Jesus. Matthew 11, 28 and 29, Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. Being gentle is simply looking more like the Jesus that you love. Galatians 25, 22, and 23, fruit of the Spirit. Fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. It's a fruit of the Spirit. 
1 Timothy 3, 2 through 3, an overseer therefore must be not a bully, but gentle. That's the requirement of every single pastor, every overseer, every elder is gentleness. Paul pushes this further in 2 Timothy 2, 24 and 25. The Lord's servant must not quarrel. Why, I don't know why pastors act like these verses aren't in the Bible. I get on Twitter and I see people and I'm like, do we just, do we think this isn't here? The Lord's servant must not quarrel, cannot be quarrelsome, not making a fight out of every little thing, but must be gentle to everyone, able to teach and patient, instructing his opponents with gentleness. Perhaps God will grant them repentance, leading them to the knowledge of the truth. Paul there does the same thing in connecting our life of gentleness to a way that draws people to Jesus. So there is like this derogatory term on Twitter um, right now. That there, there's, a, there's a whole vein of Christians who are like, well, these people are being the tone police. They're just the tone, monitoring our tone. Well, what you said was true, but the way you said it wasn't very nice. And there's the tone police. And No, we've got to stand for truth. And Jesus flipped tables and prophets. They confronted Israel and Elijah mocked the prophets of Baal. And we need to have this serrated edge of ministry that, that cuts through the noise of culture. And we need to stand for truth. And all these tone police people need to just chill out. And I'm like, this is the Bible. Jesus is saying, this matters. It doesn't mean there's not a situation where perhaps we need to righteously in anger flip tables, but that was not the posture of Jesus's ministry. It was the exception. So I'm also saying we don't ever act like that. There's not a time for that. But I'm saying the tone and the posture of God's people and especially God's pastors should be marked with gentleness. And that's where me as a pastor, I read 1 Peter 3, 1 through 6, and I learn from these women. As they follow Jesus, living a gentle life in a non-ideal situation, I go, I can learn something from that, as all of us can. Friends, it's not describing a woman who looks like a Stepford wife. It's about a woman that looks like Jesus and is gentle. It's one that's a quiet spirit, this posture, not of argumentation, but one that lives peaceably, that isn't looking Again, to, to battle every single thing that's said. Gentle and quiet spirit. And Peter, I think, says this here to make sure that we don't feel like this is just a tool to be used. Well, let me okay, do these things so that my husband may be won over. But notice he says, no, here's why you should strive for these things. This imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit. Because it is of great worth in God's sight. That's primary. We live this life because we fear the Lord, love Him, reverential awe, wanting to follow Jesus, wanting to please Him. Oh, it's of great worth in Him, so I will follow and look more like Him. And the fruit of that, the fruit of that is that it leads to these relationships that then may be won over. For the most beautiful thing about a person cannot be seen and lasts forever. The most beautiful thing about a person cannot be seen and lasts forever. It is internal and it is imperishable. Oh, and friends, it is of great worth in God's sight. This is a call to wives, but again, it is a call to all of us to work to cultivate that kind of spirit in our lives. 
And Peter says, this is what a beautiful life, a wife looks like. One that lives in this kind of eternal beauty. And third, he says, not only is it a woman who lives winsome lives, has this eternal beauty, but also has this fearless hope in verses five and six. He shifts then and looks at examples in the past. He says, for in the past, holy women who put their hope in God also adorned themselves in this way, submitting to their own husbands. So Peter's now shifting and going, now let's look at examples from the past. Examples from the Old Testament, these holy women, concluding this section, wives of unbelieving husbands. And he's looking at, notice the words here, holy women who put their hope in God. That phrase right there is the foundation of this whole passage. That's the thrust of it. That's the, the very first movement is one that says, okay, Lord, I'm going to put my hope in you. And what does that lead to? Well, that leads to a holy kind of a life. What does that holiness look like? It looks like goodness and beauty in a world that, uh, that so desperately needs it. And then as that plays itself out in relationship to a marriage, that then leads to the fruit of submission. But that's not the beginning point. That's the end fruit of all of this. But it begins with these women who put their hope in God. And friends, we can all learn from these women's example. These women in 1 Peter are women who put their hope in God. Women who fear God and not man. Women who lead pure and reverent lives. They're examples not just to wives, but to all of us this morning. And here's the question for us, for every single person that's here, as we look at this example. Friends, how does your life, or how should your life look different? Because you put your hope in God. I think what Peter's saying is that these women put their hope in God first. And in this relationship, here's how it works itself out. Oh, friends, for you, you may not be in this situation, but you may be in a situation where you find yourself drawn to wealth, money. Maybe you have a significant amount of wealth or money. And there is this temptation to put your hope in what you have and not in God. Oh, friends, how does it look different for you to put your hope in God? Maybe you're a parent. And there's a temptation to put your hope in how your children will grow up, how they may act, what they may turn into, whether or not they will trust in Jesus themselves. Oh, but friends, have you put your hope in God first, or do you hope in how your children may turn out? Maybe in your vocation, or your relational status, or your social status, whatever it might be. Again, are you putting your hope in something other than God and how does putting your hope in God change the way that you interact with this other stuff and I'll tell you the way that it does it begins to make us when we put our hope in God first and primarily it begins to make us strangers and exiles here because we go this stuff doesn't give me meaning this stuff doesn't give me value I'm hoping in God and living and walking to my true home so I can hold this stuff loosely whether or not I have a little or I have a lot, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's what Paul says. He learned the secret of contentment because his hope was in God and he lived as a stranger and an exile here. Oh, friends, may we live with the type of courage that these women who put their hope in God and lived a strange and exiled life knowing that their inheritance that they were walking towards. And what example specifically does he use in verse 6? He thinks of a specific person, Sarah. 
So maybe you've grown up in the church, you know the story of Sarah and Abraham, and maybe this is your first time in a church slash basketball gym, and you're like, who is Sarah? But Sarah was married to Abraham, and they had an interesting relationship, and I'm so grateful Peter chose Sarah, inspired by God's spirit, because Sarah was not a pushover. You read the story of Sarah, Sarah got in Abraham's face a few times, and he needed it every single time. Uh, Sarah was one who was a strong woman as she lived along with Abraham. And there was a particular moment you would think submission that maybe Peter would use. There's a story of Abraham going into this foreign land and he was worried. Sarah was beautiful. Oh man, these people are going to come kill me and try to take her as their own. So I'm going to say she's my sister and not my wife. I'm going to lie. And Sarah goes along with it. You would think this is submission. This is good. This is the example Peter's probably thinking of. But God later corrects Abraham, punishes those uh, in the area who were uh, doing, anyway, he, he corrects Abraham, and Peter doesn't use that example, I think specifically because that's not what submission is. Submission does not mean obeying your husband and disobeying God, ever. Peter doesn't use that example because I don't think God was pleased with that example. Because we are to fear God above anything else. So if the government is telling us to do something that God prohibits, we don't obey the government and submit. If our bosses are telling us to do something, whether it's fudging our taxes or getting around uh, any kind of legal fees or anything else, uh, we don't do that. Or being dishonorable and, and dishonest in sales, we don't do that because we fear God and not the people over us. And wives, if your husband is telling you to do something that God has told you not to do, submission does not mean you listen to him. It means you listen to God. You fear him. Now, the example that Peter uses with Sarah is when she called him Lord. And again, we got to be careful that husbands don't walk out here and like, great, honey, I got a new nickname for you to call me. <laughs> Let me just tell you, that's not going to go well. And you can email me. We have marital counseling throughout the week <laughs> for any of you. Now, that's not what Peter's getting at here. He's talking about the specific story in Genesis 18, where Sarah hears of God coming to promise Abraham a child that she's going to have. And they were both really old. Sarah and Abraham were really old, past childbearing age. Abraham and Sarah, this is what the Bible says in Genesis 18. Abraham and Sarah were old and getting on in years. Very, very kind, very honest. Sarah had passed the age of childbearing. So when she heard it, she laughed to herself. After I'm worn out and my Lord is old. That's the reference to Abraham. And my Lord is old, will I have delight? But the Lord asked Abraham, why did Sarah laugh? Saying, can I really have a baby when I'm old? Here's what God asked Abraham. Is anything impossible for the Lord? At the appointed time, I'll come back to you. And in about a year, she will have a son. And Sarah, after that, is like, well, I didn't laugh. And God's like, yeah, yeah, you did. Yeah, you, you definitely did. So it's interesting. This is the example that Peter uses because it's in a moment where her laughter is signifying her distrust in what God is saying. And when she references my Lord, it's a sign of, it's a word of respect, a title of respect, not one of divinity or absolute authority. And so she would use a different word today. My man honey, or whatever it might be, to denote that kind of respect. He is my Lord. He is my man. This is Abraham. And she's saying it almost as a throwaway phrase where no one can hear her. Can I really have, um, am I worn out? After I'm worn out and my Lord is old, will I have delight? And Peter says, that's the example. A woman who still honors and respects her husband even when no one's listening. 
This is her posture and what comes out is respect for her husband. Even in her distrust of God, that's the example that Peter uses, calling him Lord. And she, he says, when you do this, you've then become her children, children of Sarah, when you do what is good and do not fear any intimidation. You hear at the very end, these are the women that Peter's describing. Do what is good. You don't have to fear your husband. You don't have to fear societal pressure. You fear God alone and you can laugh at what is to come. Oh, friends, what incredible strength in these women. What incredible courage in these, by these women in this context who were standing up to follow Jesus in the face of everything else that had no fear and could follow Jesus striving to look like him with reverent, pure, gentle, and quiet, quietly spirited lives. Holy putting their hope in him and not fearing any intimidation. Friends, this is not a picture of a timid woman. This is a picture of a strong woman. This is not a picture of leave it to beaver, make sure dinner's ready, that I look good and presentable when my husband comes home and make sure he's just nice and do everything I tell him. Friends, that is an American version of femininity from the mid-1900s that we have to be careful not to import onto this. We have to look at what the Bible says. And what does the Bible say about these strong women? They look more like Proverbs 31 than they do anything from a sitcom in the mid-1900s. And that's why we read it earlier. And I hope you heard the way the Bible describes a beautiful woman. Oh, it is not silence and timidity and passivity. No, it's strength. Here's, again, just to finish here, Proverbs 31. Strength and honor are her clothing. And she can laugh at the time to come. Her mouth speaks wisdom. And loving instruction is on her tongue. She watches over the activities of her household and is never idle. Her children rise up and call her blessed. Her husband also praises her. Many women have done noble deeds, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceptive. And beauty is fleeting. But a woman who fears the Lord will be praised. Friends, this is a beautiful wife. She's not an accessory and she is not a servant. She is the greatest earthly gift that God has given to her husband. Strength, compassion, industriousness, a hard work ethic, wise and fearless as she fears God alone. It's not a personality type, friends. This is what biblical womanhood looks like and fear and a beautiful wife looks like. And I love verse 11 of Psalm 31 of Proverbs 31. It says the heart of her husband trusts in her. Has confidence in her. I love that verse because it makes me think of my wife. Leah is not an accessory to my life. She is the foundation of our household. And my life my heart trusts in her. She is strong, imperfect, and sometimes frustrating, but not as frustrating as I am. <laughs> oh, but she is strong. And that strength is a wonderful and intentional gift from God. Strength, honor, and dignity are her clothing. Oh, friends, we have to be careful not to read this as a personality type. And we have to take the Bible for what it says as we live as strangers and exiles here. 
This is the magnetic pull of this text, is the gentleness, this quiet spirit, as we reflect and model the gentleness of Jesus. I think again, closing Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 through 30. That's why I think this text is so attractive to so many. Because we see the heart of Jesus is gentle and lowly in heart. And when we come to him, we'll find rest for our souls. That's what draws us to him. And Peter's saying for all of us, follow in the steps of Jesus. And let your lives then have that kind of a magnetism. The same magnetism of Jesus. That all are welcome at his table. And when you come to him, you will find a savior who cares for you with gentleness and with humility. And you will find the rest that your soul has been longing for. Let's pray.